Welcome back to the 104th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including Senator Halley's crossroads for conservatism, the fact that Anna Kasparian has kind of woken up a little bit, or at least that's how it seems, and then our final article before the Daily Delight, we'll talk about the Chilean president nationalizing the lithium industry. And as I just mentioned, of course, we will have a daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So both sides of the political aisle in America, they seem to be coming to grips with reality, or it feels as though they're trying to either moderate or they're playing to their base. But they're realizing, you know, at the end of the day, our base isn't going to win general elections. That seems to be the feeling that I'm getting watching a lot of these political commentary shows, listening to a lot of different personalities on either side. And some conservatives have realized, okay, we may have gone a little bit too far. And some progressives and liberals have realized the same. Oh, some of these policies aren't really as popular with the American people as we may have thought. But is it too late to pivot? Or is, more accurately, is America already so divided and is it too stubborn to really move past the two-party system? Tell me what you think. Throw your comments in the comment section down below. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. All right. Our first article comes from the American Conservative. Conservatives at a Crossroads. So this article was written by Senator Halley, I believe, of Arkansas. I don't necessarily know that for sure. But he was writing to the Heritage Foundation, and he was trying to highlight where conservatives go from here. And when I first read this headline of the article, I was like, oh, okay, he's going to talk about them going a little bit too far to the right. They need to moderate. And there is a few sprinkles of that here and there. But there are also places where he's saying that they really need to focus on this culture war. And to be clear, he doesn't say it in those terms. But when you hear the second to last quote that I have, it really does highlight the emphasis on the culture war. And that's why I'm going to save it till a little bit later. Because there are more important issues that I think he's trying to address. And I like to talk about those a little bit more. Quote, it is my conviction we stand as one of the great crossroads in American history. This decision that we will make in the next five to ten years will determine the shape of the next 50 or 100. And the question is, what will conservatives stand for this hour? Do we have what it takes to face the challenges before us? We face a rising adversary in China. We face a loss of industry at home, the unraveling of our social fabric, falling birth rates, falling family formation. But above all, our challenges, in my estimation, we face the radical challenge of new Marxism, of a new left that seeks to transform American life. So I'll pause here for a second. The first ones, China being an adversary on the world stage, family formation, falling birth rates, the unraveling of the social fabric, and loss of industry. Boom, 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 boom. I'm right there with you. I'm pretty sure everybody in America, except maybe for 
the falling birth rates and family formation would agree with those points. I think almost everybody would agree. You don't feel as connected with your neighbor who is not of the same political ilk as you sometimes. You don't feel as comfortable talking about certain issues in certain places. Maybe you have a safe church community where you feel like you can speak on that, or maybe you have a really good neighborhood where you feel like you can be open about that. But in the wider sense, since the use of social media is so prevalent, you can't necessarily always be in a place that feels safe to speak about certain issues. And when I say safe, that's not necessarily fair. But we as humans, we don't like criticism. We don't like negative interactions. So we try to mitigate some things that would cause that. So we don't actually discuss politics and the issues underwriting them anymore because we're afraid of the negative consequences. So I agree with a lot of what he's saying. But then he has to dive into the cultural Marxism or the new Marxism. And whether or not his thought process is well-founded, because there are definitely certain ideologies that are present on the left that resemble Marxism or have neo-Marxist thinks, uh, thinking, uh, critical race theory, critical gender theory. These are all born of critical theory, which is a Marxist idea. But, but, he is creating an other, which I don't, I don't like. It's not a unifying statement. It's, especially when he says we face a radical challenge of new Marxism, and he's implying here that it comes from the left. The next line literally says, quote, of a new left that seeks to transform American life, to transform particularly every institution we cherish, to abolish the traditional family, to rewrite American history, to purge our society of Christian influence and the Bible, end quote. And he's trying to create an other. Now, I'm not saying that he's wrong. There probably are people on that side of the aisle that want to do those things. But if we treat them as an other and we keep riling up and using strong rhetoric like this, that they want to abolish the traditional family, they want to rewrite history, they want to purge the society of Christians and their values, these are very strong, strong language that you use when trying to inculcate fear in people. And this is not the way to go about it. Just like when the left or progressives says negative things about, oh, the Republicans are racist, they're angry, they're unmoral, they're invading our rights, all of this type of language, it really speaks to the social fabric falling apart that he's talking about. And it's ironic that I find it happening almost two lines after he points out that there is a social falling apart. So when moving forward, I don't necessarily think that we should use such inflammatory language. And I know, I know people are probably listening. If you're from one side of the aisle, you're like, Alex, what, what do you mean? This is, this is the biggest thing that we've ever de dealt with. This is a terrible travesty. We cannot have this going on. And if you're from the other side, it's like, they're coming for our rights. We can't. So I understand. Everybody feels justified in their side, and everybody feels justified in the language they use to defend their side. But at the end of the day, I think the crossroads in conservatism, and more accurately, the crossroads in America, is not, oh, there's a new left, or there's a more radical right. It's, okay, what brings us together? 
when are we going to acknowledge we are all Americans? Even if we have different value systems, we all live in the same country. We have to work with one another in order to get bills passed, in order to change and better our society. So it's extremely naive, in my opinion, to believe that this is a smart move to call out the other and demonize them. Because at the end of the day, you're still going to live in a country with them. You can't, unless there's a national divorce, you cannot get rid of these people. So by othering them and saying, oh, this other group, they don't care about our values. They are the enemy. And I know, oh, let's be clear, I don't think Senator Hall is using, informa- using words exactly like this. But these sort of small rhetorical choices have a large impact when it is broadcast to millions and millions of people. A lot of people will take these terms in a very different way. And he really, Senator Halley really does focus on the fact that this is born, this new conservatism that has allowed this to rise was born of the change in the world after the Cold War. How the United States decided that, oh, okay, we're the global hegemon now. We're going to secure a lot of the trade routes. We're going to foster a neoliberal globalization. We're all going to be buddy-buddy. We're all going to be trading with one another. We're going to be offshoring some of our jobs to other places because it's cheaper. We can provide them a way up and out of their current situation. And that is beautiful. At the end of the day, if you're a person who likes free trade, you hear that and you are ecstatic. But in order to do that, you have to take on, or in order to be willing to do that and have policies that benefit that within your nation, you have to have a little bit of a shift towards liberalism and not necessarily as protectionist national policies that protect your own individual markets. And Halley really points this out and says this is one of the major shifts that happened, and that is why we've lost a lot of jobs. I acknowledge this and talked about it in a podcast. The uh, I believe it was released last Friday. So we know that this was a shift that happened, and we know we lost jobs because of it. And Halley does address this. He's saying, hey, we need to bring jobs back to the United States. We need to reshore jobs. And this is one issue that Senator Halley talks about, about making sure that we have a strong working and middle class that I hear and I've heard from the progressives as well. And I think this is a little nugget of hope, in my opinion, because Senator Halley talks about this. Republicans have been talking about this for years. And then you hear people like Kyle Kalinske, who is a progressive, Bernie Sanders, who is obviously a progressive, if not a social democrat, whatever title you want to give them. But both sides are talking about strengthening the working class. They acknowledge that a lot of the prosperity in America came during the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when there was a strong middle class that was working their butts off in order to bring their family from below to the higher rungs of society. And it allowed us to, one, have a lot of strong jobs, two, be a manufacturing hub for the world, which allowed us to really dominate. Because if you're part of the manufacturing process and you're the place that's being manufactured and you're also the country that is securing that trade, you are pivotal 
to every single country within that supply chain. So it gives you a lot of dominance on the world stage politically. And so this is a beautiful crossroads. This is where progressives and conservatives are actually speaking the same message. Hey, strengthen the working class and the middle class. They just have very different approaches of how to do it. A lot of progressives would probably say, okay, we need to have a universal basic income or at least a living wage standard across the nation. We need to have strong unions so they can enforce these good deals for their members with the companies. And Halley would say, we need to ensure that we can bring back a lot of companies to the U.S. We need to lower regulation so that they can thrive and then they can expand and create more jobs and they can create more high-paying jobs. So there are lots of different approaches to this. And that's where the tricky part is. They both agree on what has to be done. They don't agree on how to get there. And while that can be frustrating... I think it shows a little bit of hope because it understands that both sides have a key understanding of what is necessary to move forward, what is very important to ensure that not only that America stays on top, but if America does fall off, that we can still be a strongly placed country who has a strong, thriving middle class and won't be susceptible to social decay because you have a whole bunch of middle-class people who feel that they've been thrown out, that they've been taken advantage of by the system. And this is where we can come together and have these conversations. They're very far apart. We, I acknowledge that. I know I'm being a little idealistic, and it's funny because I did call people naive a minute ago, but this is an issue that we can come together on. And when I hear this, it makes me think, that if we could get them to just sit down in a room and both acknowledge, okay, working class people, we know that this is the issue. We know that we want to solve their problems. We want to alleviate their situation. How do we go about doing that? And then we have to also really pressure them to give up a little bit. Maybe conservatives give a one or two more pro-union stances while the progressives who normally like regulation give up a few different types of regulation. It's a push and pull. And nowadays, it feels like it's all or nothing. We wait until we have a Democrat House and Senate and then a president, and then we pass what we want. Or we wait until we have a Republican House and Senate and president, and then we pass what we want. Versus acknowledging that you're going to have to lose some things. You're going to have to come together. You're going to have to concede some things to the other side that you don't like. But you're also going to get different policies and regulations that you like on your end. And it's not an all-for-nothing battle anymore. So we're at a crossroads. They're talking about the same issues. We just got to get them to sit down. And this comes from public pressure. If you know a senator in your area who really cares about working-class issues, look up a senator from your state, another state, or even if it's a House of Representatives member, look up someone who has a diametrically opposed view when it comes to how to solve working, but they still care about the working class, and maybe send them a letter, an email, asking, what do you think about this person's opinions? Would you be willing to sit down and have serious conversations? There is still bipartisanship. There is still cooperation, even if it's not fully bipartisan, between the parties. I mean, you saw Ted Cruz and AOC sit down to author a bill about term limits. Come on, AOC and Ted Cruz? 
that's that's a pretty big deal. They're pretty far apart on certain things. But when they're sufficiently motivated by the populace that supports them, they will go out and they will try to make some of these changes. So I know I went on a really long rant there, and I didn't necessarily get to all the quotes, but I, I summarized the main thing I was working on, which is Halley really wants to strengthen the working class, and a lot of people, when they hear that, they think it's a blank check. And that the Republicans really need to come through and prove it. And my argument is, yeah, the Republicans need to come through and prove it. But the progressives can be there too, trying to prove it at the same time. And maybe you guys can work together. All right, let's jump to our second article. This one comes from the New York Post. The Awakening of Anna Kasparian, When the Left Meets Reality. So a little bit of backstory here. Uh, I'll fill you in. Do you do you all know who Anna Kasparian is? Probably, maybe. If you're listening to a political podcast, I would assume so. But for those that don't, she is one of the co-hosts. I believe she's also an owner of the Young Turks. She is a progressive personality. But of recent, she's been coming out with a few more based takes, is how the conservatives would like to put it. When they see some of her clips, she went on with Ben Shapiro recently. She didn't want to be called a birthing person, which is what this article is about. And also the fact that Newsom is trying to force everybody to have EV vehicles inside California. So, you know, I kind of was supposed to give her background. Now I jumped into the article. Let's just jump to the first quote. Quote, what happens when leftism meets reality? Anna Kasparian, co-host of the left-wing show The Young Turks, recently found out Kasparian rallied against the financial hardship of retrofitting her California condo to allow for electric vehicle charging stations. Governor Gavin Newsom, who's committed to driving straight into the ground, signed an executive order mandating an end to gas car sales by 2035 and very expensive charging stations will be installed throughout the state. A distressed Kasparian described the, quote, massive effing loan her building must take out to install the stations, end quote. So, yeah, I mean, she's not necessarily happy about this one. She's not happy that her building is being forced to install some of these stations. And a lot of her issue comes from the fact that, well, this is a government-mandated program, so why are you not going to finance it. And the article goes on to really say, well, hey, if they're financing it, think about it this way, you're financing it. Because the government can't just, I mean, I take that back, the federal government can't just print money. But the California government, they can't just print money. They can't just have it magically appear out of nowhere. They're going to increase tax rates. They're going to take tax money from you that you've earned in the economy and then they're going to build that station that your building would have to take out a loan for, which you would be paying for anyway. Now, of course, the cost is dispersed a little bit more widely across a larger amount of people, so you don't feel the hurt as much. But the New York Post is really trying to highlight here that the people, the personalities on the left, and let's be clear, Jank and Anna, they are not stupid people. They are fully aware that when they're saying you should just give us a subsidy for it or you should go to the company and make a special deal so that they don't charge as much to install these and make them an exclusive contractor. Let's be clear. I don't think they've said this. But if I was a progressive personality, I would say go to the company, be 
sure to lock down a good deal where they are the exclusive provider of these systems. And in doing so, you give them a subsidy or a discount when they're installing or you give the people a subsidy or discount for the install of these charging stations. And that could be a way to reduce the actual cost for people. But what the New York Times is New York Post is really getting at here is, hey, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. And this is where the left has really hit a brick wall, which is they want certain policies. They want these heavy investments into environmental causes. And then when they have to pay for them, they get a little bit upset saying, why isn't the government handling this? Why isn't, why does it not just steal my money and pay for it rather than causing my building to have to pay for it? Cause you know, it's okay if my money's gone, it's okay if it's taken through tax dollars because I don't actually see the loss. I don't see that I'm directly paying for that charging station, or at least not the same way as if my building has to take out a loan and I have to pay my landlord the money for those charging stations. So that's where this little disconnect is coming from. And Anna really did continue this battle on one episode of The Young Turk Show. Quote Kasparian also points out that shortly after the gas car ban was announced, the state experienced a heat wave and Newsom was forced to tell Californians their grid was in trouble. So please don't charge your electric cars. It's one of the most many reasons rapidly moving to an all-electric car economy is not a serious proposal and Newsom is not a a serious man. What's extra interesting about the exchange is that leftist Cenk Uyghur her co-host and Young Turks creator couldn't really challenge her remarks. At one point, he tries to gingerly push back. I hear you on all that, but at some point, we got to go to electric cars, he says. The planet's burning. So when California says, hey, let's go to electric cars by 2025, yeah, it's going to be tough, but at the same time, now prices are coming down, end quote. And to be fair, there is a point there, which is, if there's a forced, if there's a mandate and these companies have to start producing electric cars, they're going to start pr- trying to produce them more effectively so that people are more willing to buy them. If there is a demand for electric charging stations, then companies will start innovating to come up with cheaper ways to provide those charging stations, to have more innovative technology, to be more competitive in the free market. So it will drive costs down for sure. But that's not exactly what Kasparian's getting at. She's not saying, oh, yes, it's just so expensive, and that's not okay. She's saying, it's expensive, and this is a government-mandated program, so why aren't you helping us here? And it really just comes into conflict with, at the end of the day, you want a policy. You want something to be true, but you're not willing to actually pay the repercussions that come along with wanting that policy. Because when they want something like this and they say all government just pay for it, they're saying, okay, just use tax dollars. Well, some people may not want their tax dollars to go to that. And there's another, I'm not trying to harp too hard on progressives here, but you always hear about them talking about, oh, well, we'll pay for it with more taxes, with different types of capital capital gains taxes or creative workarounds. My question to them is, if there was an optional system where you could pay in 40% of your income rather than 35 or 45% or 50% of your income rather than 35, 
would you opt in to purposely paying more money in taxes in order to pay for some of these programs? Maybe there's an option on the ballot coming up. Do you want to have a housing fund that a there's a select tax bracket for that you say, if I want to contribute an extra 15% of my taxes to this fund specifically, that they would vote yes for it, and then they would also actively engage and do it every single time? I'm not saying they wouldn't, but it's a very interesting question. If given the option to give more money to the government and give away more of their personally earned money in order to support some causes that they like, would they do it? I feel like, as a person, I would not. Because at the end of the day, I... (laughs) I want the money that I earn to stay in my pocket. But maybe this is something that could be proposed and progressives would be all for it. I have a feeling deep down that people like the money that they earn a little bit more than that, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. My feelings on the matter may not be true. Uh, Maybe Kyle Kalinske would totally be in favor of that, and he would give an extra 20% of his income to certain programs that he speaks about regularly on his program. All right, that's enough ranting about this one. We're going to go to our last article very quickly from Truth Out. Chilean president announces to slowly nationalize the lithium industry. So as we come into this new era of batteries, you've been probably been hearing about it a lot. The conservatives in America have been talking about the fact that we have exported our battery building capacity and the mining of these very important resources to other countries and how that's a strategical problem. And you've probably heard the leftists talking about how some of these mines, they're not necessarily conducive to a green environment. Now, of course, lithium is used in EV batteries, but that doesn't mean that the mining process is as clean as they would want it to be. So you've heard lots of talking points about this. And people are starting to realize that lithium, cobalt, nickel, copper, these minerals are going to play a huge role role in the next coming years as a lot of countries around the world push for more EV cars as well as just larger batteries because they need to store all this renewable energy that they're generating from windmills, solar farms, and things like this. So this is a very strategic industry and you can see why the Chilean president is probably like, okay, we need a little bit more control over this considering the export of lithium could actually determine the future of Chile. If they are forced by third-party companies who come in from other countries and undercut the Chilean companies, then these Chilean companies are not going to be making as much money as they could. They wouldn't have as much control over this very valuable resource that they would want to have going into the future. Right now, it's a huge leverage point over China. So China obviously is one of the largest battery producers in the world, and they get a lot of their lithium and other minerals from outside their own country, Australia, Indonesia, and then this little lithium triad here in South America, which includes, quote, about 40, uh, 60% of the world's reserves are located in Southern America, the lithium triangle, which includes Bolivia, about 21 million, Argentina, about 19.3 million tons, and Chile with about 9.6 million tons, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. For now, Chile is leading the, those nations in their terms of production and ranked second globally after Australia, end quote. 
So you can see how this is a very important industry moving forward. So let's actually talk about Bork's plan here. Quote, under Bork's plan, the government would respect existing contracts with those industry giants set to expire in 2030 and 2043, respectively. However, all future contracts for the metal would involve government-controlled public-private partnerships, Bork explained. He ultimately envisions a national company focused on lithium. But because creating one could delay any legislation divisions, agreements will initially be led by the state-owned copper mining company Codelo. According to the Associated Press, Borg said that in addition to being involved in the mining, the government will promote the development of lithium products with added value, with the goal of becoming the world's leading lithium producer, end quote. So he's not just going to want to mine it, but he's also maybe going to invest in refining it there in Chile, which is, of course, a very strategic market. Like I said, China has a lot of control over the refining process of a lot of different metals because of the manufacturing base that they've built up over generations. So if Chile can position itself here, maybe they could be a cutoff or a different partner to China, rather than sending all of their products over there or all of their lithium and natural minerals over there and relying on them to refine it. Maybe they can do a little bit here at home. And if they get a jump start on this, then they could say, hey, Argentina, Bolivia, let's create a little trade organization here you send your minerals here to Chile so we can process them, and then we don't have to rely on China as much, and we'll have a little bit more political bargaining power on the world stage. So even though I don't necessarily agree with nationalization, I don't think that it is in the best interest of a country to fully take over a certain industry because it becomes a little bit stagnant. They're not necessarily facing the same market forces that they would be if they were to stay private. I do think that for the security of Chile, it's a very interesting play, and it has a lot of geopolitical strings that are attached to a move like this. So I want to see where this goes from here. We've seen nationalization of industries in South America before. Sometimes it has worked, sometimes it has not. So, And we've also seen the overly private takeover of Southern American countries by U.S. companies back in the day, and that didn't work out well either. So we'll see how this one develops. We'll see if it's a boom or a bust, but keep your eyes on Chile and see what they're doing, considering lithium is one of the most necessary and more strategic elements going into this next decade, if not the next five, uh, five decades. So let's jump into our last article this one is our daily delight that comes from the animal rescue site. Toddler spots Great Dane in the store and has the cutest reaction. So there is really something about dogs that just draw some people in, especially when they're little people like children. Quote, a tiny toddler had the most precious reaction to meeting a Great Dane and their interaction was caught on video. Colonel the Great Dane was walking through the store with his owner, Alyssa Berkowitz, when the little toddler spotted him, end quote. And this little guy, he did not hesitate at all. He came in full speed. He was ready to say hello to this guy. Quote, the small child was so mesmerized by the huge dog, he couldn't take his eyes off of him. He giggles when the dog moves and becomes very excited when Alyssa says he can pet the dog, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of this one, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button 
where you can find all of them. Also down there, there are the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine, as well as a link to the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a link directly to the YouTube video on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.